This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. My name is Shannon Walker, and I'm joined here today with my teammates Heather Hochrein, Aaron Williamson, and Kelsey Johnson. Together, we are EV Match, and we are empowering a new generation of electric vehicle owners. The current way we transport ourselves is dirty, and it needs to change. Emissions from gasoline vehicles continue to damage the environment and your lungs. Electric vehicles are part of the solution and can enable us to live in cleaner cities with better air quality. EV Match facilitates the mass adoption of these vehicles. There are three reasons why people are not buying EVs today. These are the high cost of the vehicle, limited access to charging to power the vehicle, and limited range of current battery technology. But within the next year, new vehicle models will come to market, such as the Tesla Model 3 and the Chevy Bolt, and those will have half the cost and twice the range of today's average electric vehicle. As you can see, this leaves one unaddressed barrier to the ownership of electric vehicles, charging accessibility, which is where we found the market opportunity for EV Match. So we began by conducting extensive industry and customer research. And we gathered information from over 400 individuals, including current and potential EV owners and industry experts. We learned a lot about different challenges that current EV owners face in trying to fuel or power their vehicles. For example, public charging is expensive and unreliable. And if you're a renter, you're often prohibited from installing your own residential charging station, even if you offer to pay for it. Overall, we learned that there are many people wanting to purchase electric vehicles that can't because they don't have a way to reliably charge them. Enter EV Match. We put more EV chargers on the road, therefore, excuse me, we put more EV chargers on the map, therefore supporting more EVs on the road. And we do this through creating a dual-sided marketplace with hosts on the one side who are residential charging station owners willing to share access and users who are any EV driver looking for a reliable charging solution. EV matches in the middle connecting the two with our web platform. We offer a value to the host in allowing them to increase the return on their investment in their residential charging infrastructure, and a value to the user in allowing them to reserve and pay for charging before they leave their home. The market for electric vehicles is projected to increase exponentially over the next decade, and EV Match will be a leading factor driving this growth. Particularly, California is well positioned to lead the way in the adoption of electric vehicles with robust goals for zero emissions vehicles that go hand in hand with the state's renewable energy policies. But even in California, right now there's only one public charging station for every 10 electric vehicles. And this is simply not enough when you consider that it can take hours to fuel these vehicles as opposed to just a few minutes to fill up a gas tank. This leads most EV owners today to install those residential charging stations, but this isn't an option for a large portion of Americans. 37% of U.S. households rent, and that number is even higher in California. So what do people do when they want to use something but they can't access or afford it? They share. But really, people are using the sharing economy more and more these days, 
two in five Americans have currently used the sharing economy, and that number is growing. EV Match is proposing to harness the potential of the sharing economy to meet the current and future needs for EV charging infrastructure. Now I'll lead you through a quick video of our marketplace. So this is Jimmy. He's an EV Match user, and he's looking for a place to charge his vehicle. He goes onto our application and enters in a few key pieces of information that are saved for later and go into our backend pricing algorithm. Once that he's entered that information, he's able to look in our mapping system to find a charger that fits his specific needs, location, price, and availability. He can see a calendar of when that charger is available and the price for the transaction that he's requesting. The host receives a notification of the request, either via email or text. And in that notification, there's a direct link to the application where she can review the user's profile see the price of the transaction and the profit that she'll be making. Once that she's reviewed that information, she has the option to accept or deny the request. In this case, she accepts. And within less than a minute, we've facilitated an efficient charging transaction. Now I'll let Heather lead you through how we compare to some of our competitors. Thanks, Shannon. So we know that people already have a variety of charging options today, but they simply fall short. EV Match will offer a competitive advantage by providing five essential features that we've identified in our customer research. First, we'll provide a reservation system, allowing drivers to know exactly where and when they'll be charging, saving valuable time and money. We've also heard time and time again that public charging is very pricey, and EV Match will be low cost, especially when our hosts have rooftop solar. We'll also provide security by implementing a robust liability policy that includes both insurance and a rating system, similar to other sharing platforms that you've seen, like Airbnb. We'll also capitalize on that community building aspect of EV ownership that we know is so important to EV owners today and will drive future sales. And lastly, we'll offer payment processing as a value add over existing platforms and to provide that revenue stream to our hosts. So EV Match is a marketplace to optimize electric vehicle charging. We'll offer a pricing algorithm that provides suggested pricing to our hosts based on a variety of inputs from both the host and the user, as you can see here. Now, this suggested price will cover the cost of electricity, but the host can toggle that price up or down depending on market forces. Now, EV Match will take a percent markup of each um, charging transaction as our revenue stream. So in order to learn about our market participants, EV Match conducted a pilot project here in Santa Barbara. And from that, we learned about our customer archetypes. So first, we have our primary user. Now, our primary users live in urban areas, and they don't have access to reliable or convenient at-home charging, largely renters and apartment dwellers. They'll charge with EV Match as their primary charging option, and they'll choose a host whose location is very near to either their work or their home. They'll also have access to multimodal transportation so that they can easily pick up and drop off their vehicle. Now, we'll also have a number of secondary users. Now, these folks actually do have other primary charging options, such as home charging, but they'll use EV Match in scenarios that deviate from their typical routine, such as when they're on vacation or a business trip. And then lastly, our hosts serve as a valuable customer as they serve as the supply side of our business. Now, our hosts will have a designated parking space and they'll have access to a charger or an outlet. They'll be willing to share, but they'll want to be compensated for the electricity and the access that they provide. 
So in order to assess the financial viability of EVMatch, we created projections for the first 10 years of our operations. So in order to do this, we made a few assumptions. First, we assume a 15% markup on each transaction as our revenue stream. We made conservative assumptions about EV growth rates and our market penetration. And we accounted for our costs, including web applications, salaries, and other costs, such as liability insurance. As you can see here, we've projected this for three cities in California, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and San Diego. So this only represents a fraction of the EV market. And here we break even in year three, and we show increasing cumulative cash flows across the 10 years. But this only represents a portion of our potential revenue. Because EV Matches platform is highly scalable, so we can expand our geographic range quickly across the United States and even beyond. We'll also gain additional revenue from partnerships with solar developers and charging station manufacturers. And we'll also be able to sell our data, which we know will have increasing value as the market grows. Now, we haven't quantified these additional revenue streams, but we know they represent major potential growth. The EV Match team is composed of four Masters of Environmental Science and Management students here at the Bren School at UC Santa Barbara. We're all graduating in June. We have a variety of industry experience, ranging from electric vehicle sales, energy efficiency, renewable energy, and life cycle assessment. We also are supported by an advisory board that will provide us with industry ties and expertise. So here's a timeline of some of our next steps. We're most excited about testing our web application and continuing its development, and we plan to launch in the next six months. So why EVMatch? EVMatch is at the intersection of cleaner electricity, the growth of grid-connected vehicles, and the sharing economy. EVMatch will lead the charge in providing reliable, affordable, and convenient EV charging for a new generation of EV drivers. Thank you, and with that, I would like to open it up to questions from our judging panel. I'm ready. Um, thank you for the presentation. I really enjoyed the barriers to entry slide and the video for the product demo. I think that was a, a good approach. Um, yeah, so I'm a venture capitalist, and I actually in invested in the company PlugShare. It was actually called Satori, which you mentioned as one of your competitors. Don't worry, uh, we invested six years ago. I think we sold it three years ago to another, so I'm not involved anymore with them. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, you know, always the business model was how are you going to make money off of this, just showing information where I can charge um, uh, my vehicle at someone else's house? So you're providing you know, the actual reservation system, the mobile payment processing back end. Um, but still, you know, you're talking about, from my understanding, it only, it's only like a couple dollars to actually charge your car and electricity costs. It's not that high of a margin. I have a feeling that people are, you know, if you show prices like two, three dollars, people are actually going to use your reservation system for parking as opposed to electrical charging. <laughs> um, honestly speaking, so, so that's one thing. Um, and then also, I noticed that uh, a lot of your projections, you know, for somewhere till 2025, somewhere for 10 years. But what happens when the automated uh, vehicle comes into play, meaning self-driving cars, you already have fleets. And you don't need to park or you don't need to charge on a res personal basis because all the cars are being managed by some 
fleet operator like Uber or something, and people don't own cars anymore. Does your business model, does your business fall out then? Okay, so I heard a, I heard a number of questions in there. Uh, the first was about this being a kind of a low margin transaction. So not, not a low margin, fifteen percent is all right, but just the low cost of the actual cost to charge a vehicle isn't that that sure. much, right? Okay, so I'm hearing one that you're concerned that we have a pretty low amount of revenue coming in per per charge, and then the second question I heard in there was about what about when kind of the way we drive vehicles changes, when it shifts from personally owned vehicles to fleet vehicles. Um, so for the first question about your kind of kind of the revenue question, I'll, I'll hand that over to Heather. Okay. Um, yeah, so for our revenue, we do understand it is low. We're a low volume, or I'm sorry, a low margin, high volume business. Um, and the, the value add of parking is something that people will be wa- willing to pay for. Um, so we do see that. But we also understand that as this market grows, we'll be growing our geographic range and we'll be getting to those volumes that we need to make money. Um, it's also low capitally intensive. So once we've built our platform, um, we'll have very low costs. And so even though we will um, be you know, operating on a, on a small margin, we will be able to make uh, a large amount of money with our growing uh, geographic range. And then to address your second question about the, just the transformation of the way we drive vehicles, I think Kelsey's got an answer for you there. Yeah, so I think that is honestly extremely exciting to us to know that really the way we are going to transport ourselves is fundamentally changing, not just because of autonomous vehicles, but also because of wireless charging. And although you mentioned that, yeah, it could be a fleet that ultimately kind of takes over that realm of us kind of just dispatching our cars to various locations, those locations still need to exist and they need to exist in an efficient manner. And so we we think that we could work into that, even if it is a fleet or an individual basis, that we can work in with that so people can dispatch their cars to a geographic location that is you know, closer to where they ultimately have to go back to than going back to a home base that's maybe four or five miles away. And with electric vehicles, as you know, the range is something not to be considered. And so if you're going back and forth with stuff, you got to make sure it's the most efficient transaction. Um, I did also want to add on the PlugShare note, PlugShare has actually been one of our partners through our academic uh, research on this topic. And we have a NDA with them. We've had a chance to look at their data. We actually spent a robust portion of our customer research calling each one of their residential hosts and asking them what they liked and what they didn't. And so hence, this is kind of the model that came directly from, from us looking at PlugShare. So I'm assuming you're the first to market with with an app like this. Um, What else do you have to defend the position that you might take in the market? Is there intellectual property? Um, What about this can prevent the competition from doing what you do? Okay, so the question was about um, elaborating more on our competition and the landscape that we're operating in among the variety of EV charging options that are out there. I can take that. Uh, we can um, go back to our. We didn't actually spend time on in our um, competitive landscape talking about our competitors. We just talked about what we found, but we can go through those a little bit more in detail to sort of answer that question. Sorry, let me. Okay, there we are. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Before we go there, I think that part of your question is how are we going to kind of protect our idea from somebody else doing this? And what we've learned in 
connecting with a bunch of different um, companies in the EV landscape is that they're all in this startup process as well. And although we've gotten support from PlugShare, from EVgo, from other people that are telling us that this is a great idea, they're running their own really lean business models and they don't have the capacity to add this. They have their own core competency. They're encouraging us to continue with this model, but it's not something that they are looking to, to take on as their own business. Yeah, and the, the only thing I would add to that is that we've heard from a number of other um, businesses operating in this sphere that in order to actually bring the number of electric vehicles onto the road to make each one of us profitable, we kind of all need to be there as the support infrastructure to actually incentivize that purchase of the volume of electric vehicles that needs to be out there. So there's kind of this symbiotic relationship between um, all these different companies that kind of each offer something different. And we're hoping that our app will be a differentiator. John, just Vanessa? Add, sorry, can I just add one thing? Quickly. <laughs> Regarding the, the, our pricing algorithm is really what kind of sets us apart competitively. Um, and that although it cannot technically be patented or intellectual property, it is something that no one else offers currently. And that gives us a very realistic and nuanced idea of the price of electricity. John, Vanessa? I have a question about one of the underlying assumptions of um, the market that you're addressing. So one of the first few slides was uh, laying out the three barriers to EV purchasing, and one of them was uh, reliability of charging stations or the ability to access them. What percent of the folks that you surveyed actually named that as being their barrier to entry? Like, how, how large is this market? Okay, great. The question was, how large is the market that we actually feel like we can um, respond to with their concern about accessibility to reliable charging stations? Shannon? Um, so a few things. One, I would say that we had in-depth conversations with 40 current EV owners, and 20, uh, they all expressed that charging was a barrier to them in, in some way, that they were having struggles with finding reliable charging for their vehicle. Even if they had residential charging stations, it was difficult for them when they were out and about. Um, with that being said, about 17% of current EV drivers, so from the California rebate statistics, you can see that 17% of current EV drivers don't live in single-family homes, so they don't have likely that ability to install their own charging station. So it is a pretty fair, um, a large percentage of the current EV drivers. And then one other question, and this is regarding your I'm market. sorry, Vanessa, can we have John go? Because oh, we're going to run sure. short of time. Thank you. <laughs> it's okay. I think this is a great idea, and uh, it's needed now. I mean, the main reason I haven't bought an electro electrical vehicle is because of uh, the stress of you know, the battery running dead, and then what am I going to do, right? So I think a lot of people feel that way. Um, my concern is the longevity of the business. So first of all, I would think at some point governments, local governments, start building out and accelerate the build out of these uh, electrical uh, charging stations, and then the also the other part is you mentioned that you had uh, sec uh, an insurance policy for security. So I'm just picturing a lot of homes, even uh, myself. I don't know if I'd want a lot of strangers coming up and using my charging station, and uh, and and I have a daughter, so that it really makes it uh, uh, something that I'd be concerned about. But but uh, when you did your market research, what type of feedback did you get from those who had families or what uh, if my house got robbed or somebody got hurt, what would that do to the brand? Okay, two questions. One is about the longevity of the business. So if there are other um, solutions that are being rolled out, how do we adapt to that? And then the second was about 
What about the security concerns that we might face as there are uh, essentially strangers connecting through our platform to use uh, resources that belong to somebody else? And Shannon can take that second one. Uh, yeah, so I was going to address the security question, and security is something that we know is important. Um, we've heard, actually, though, more questions about it from judging panels than from our actual hosts. So it is interesting that the people that we're working with are less concerned, and I think that that is largely a product of the fact that right now we're working with early adopters and EV enthusiasts. With that being said, though, we we know that we need to address it, so we've created this kind of triple threat of security where we have three different levels. And the first is, as Heather mentioned, we have that review system with the ability for the host to accept or deny the transaction based on their past user um, transactions and their reviews. Then we're also actively looking into a way to have a single-use code for these chargers so that, for example, if you use a charger um, one day you could potentially right now just come back and access it without without going through our service. But if we can integrate some kind of either a lock or a single-use code, then that would prevent non-approved um, transactions. And then thirdly, then we have the liability policy. But really we're hoping that through the first two layers of security, we'll prevent most, um, you know, we'll prevent ourselves from getting to having to use that liability policy in most cases. And then again about the changing landscape, Heather? Yeah. So in terms of the longevity of the business model, we do know that this landscape is changing and part of any good business is thinking ahead. And so one thing that we're really tracking closely are the electric utility proposals that are currently out or approved with the CPUC to install large amounts of charging um, infrastructure in California. And we actually see this as an opportunity because the utilities will be taking on a big piece of that customer education and awareness and taking on the cost for that. And they'll be rolling out charging stations, but that doesn't mean that they'll be guaranteeing the use of those charging stations. And so our platform can come in and help to increase the utilization and ensure that that's a good investment in California's electricity infrastructure. So we think that we can work synergistically with some of these public proposals that are currently online. Also, we see opportunities to integrate our service into electricity demand management in the future um, and seeing electric batteries as a way to store um, excessive electricity during the day from solar. And so we see that this working with the utility and being a value add to demand side management. We're out of time. Uh, Thank you. uh, Great job, ladies. (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Chris. This is John, Vince, and Jeffrey. And we are Dermachill. Our mission is to make the world more comfortable in its skin. Today, we're excited to share how our device is not only drastically improving the quality of life for patients with eczema, but is also going to change the way that we treat itch. It's safe to say that almost everyone in this room knows someone who has eczema, someone like Eric. Eric is a five-year-old child with a severe case of eczema. Let's take a look at what the average day in Eric's life looks like. On this particular morning, Eric is dropped off to school by his mom, Jill. Now today, rather than focusing on what the teacher has to say in class, Eric is completely consumed by the urge to scratch his skin. And to make matters worse, he's embarrassed to go to the nurse's office because he's worried about what his classmates will think of his inflamed skin. Eventually, this urge to scratch becomes too much, and Eric makes his way over to the classroom sink, where he wads up paper towels, runs cold water on them, and dabs his skin. You may ask, why is Eric doing this? And it's because he knows if he were home right now, he would have already grabbed an ice pack, as the cold temperature from an ice pack 
provides Eric with immediate itch relief. Unfortunately, today, this is not the case, and he's already scratched his skin to the point where he's bleeding. He now has to go to the, the nurse's office, or his mom will be called. And upon receiving the phone call, Jill is completely derailed at work and rushes over to pick her son up. Now, Eric is no longer at school, Jill is no longer at work, and the cycle begins again tomorrow. Sadly, this story is not uncommon. In fact, there's over 30 million individuals in the U.S. alone, all itching for a solution. And these individuals are spending $3.1 billion a year on their eczema therapeutic solutions, 60% of which is spent on itch relief. This is where Dermachill comes in. So it's clear that there's a huge problem that lacks a good solution. I have a personal experience with this because my younger sister has a severe case of eczema. Growing up, I felt helpless and I felt frustrated that there wasn't anything that she would put on that would get rid of her itching immediately. So this is Dermachill. It's the answer that 30 million people in the United States are desperate for. It's a handheld, rechargeable thermoelectric device that immediately gets rid of itch. It's hygienic and available on the go wherever and whenever an eczema attack strikes. So how does this device get rid of itching? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Dermachill device uh, is based off the gate control theory of pain, which states that the human brain can only process one form of pain at a time. Cold and itch are both low forms of pain. And when the Dermachill device is applied to an area that's itching, the cold from the device blocks the sensation of itch from reaching the patient's brain so that the patient no longer feels the need or the urge to scratch. These past months, we've spoken to over 50 individuals with eczema and over 20 medical specialists. And not only do we understand the day in the life of an eczema patient, but we also understand their top priorities. Their first priority is getting rid of the itch. They know that if they don't itch, they won't scratch. If they don't scratch, then they won't continue to ruin their skin. The second thing that's important to them is keeping the skin clean. Eczema patients have open wounds all over their bodies. And the last thing they want is to transfer bacteria from their fingertips or from different parts of their skin to those open wounds. And thirdly, and most importantly, is catching the itch early on. An eczema patient knows that he has a short window of time, usually only about 30 seconds, from when he first notices that he's itching to when the itch becomes unbearable. And if he can't stop the itching within that 30-second window of time, he'll most likely scratch and damage his skin. And that's why a simple ice pack just won't cut the, and, and, or do the job here. Besides being unsanitary, it's often completely out of reach. With the time ticking and that window quickly closing, an eczema patient needs his solution in his pocket. It can't be down the hall stuck in a refrigerator, and it certainly can't be in the nurse's office. He needs the Dermachill device. We also know that the influencers and purchasers of our device are parents with eczema. And this is because eczema is extremely prominent among children. Parents often influence each other online because they share about which solutions have and have not worked for them. They also support each other emotionally because eczema is such a taxing disease. They often go online to purchase non-prescription therapies, and because of those reasons, we'll initially be selling our device through online channels. Lastly, we validated our price point at $150. So let's talk about how we make money. A customer can go to our online website to purchase the, the Dermachill device for $149. And if they're purchasing for a child, 
but it can also purchase a child-friendly version of our device. And to address his concerns about hygiene, they can purchase hygienic pads that are fit specifically to the Dermachill device. And these hygienic pads are consumables and can be disposed of after every single use to ensure cleanliness, which is so important to an eczema patient. And these pads can be purchased for a monthly supply through a subscription fee of $20 a month or a year supply for $199. Our year one production cost for the Dermachill device is $40, leaving us with a healthy gross margin of 73%. For the pads, the gross margins are at 50%, leaving us uh, with the production cost of $10. And as we continue to, to grow, we expect these costs to decrease and the gross margins to increase. We plan to take these strong gross margins and pair them with an even stronger go-to-market strategy. Beginning in our pre-production phase, where we will drive demand for our device by focusing on earned media opportunities. Starting with networking through online support groups, as this is where patients with eczema go to talk to other patients about their disease. We will also be attending national eczema conventions, and lastly, continuing to form a strong relationship with the National Eczema Association itself. In phase two, we will continue to drive demand for our device by launching a crowdfunding campaign, and at this point, contract a manufacturing facility to build the device. In phase three, we pair the demand we've created with the launch of our e-commerce website and initial channel. And then as we continue to grow, we want to take our device into retail channels by showing the proven traction on our e-commerce site to translate into their e-commerce websites and eventually move into the retail stores themselves. At this point, we also want to take our device into international markets by forming overseas partnerships. So where are we today? As of today, we have created a class one medical device for patients with eczema, but we don't plan to stop here. We have ideas to use form-fitting Peltier technology to create a device that's more malleable to the human body. We also want to introduce a mobile application that paired with our products would allow a parent to see when and how often their child is uncomfortable. And lastly, we have ideas to move into cool tech clothing. Now, with that said, it's also important to point out that today, we've been describing a medical device for patients with eczema, but if you take a step back, what we're really doing is creating portable cold and we see a multitude of applications for our technology. There's the global itch market in general, sports therapy, and hot and cold therapy. And by taking this perspective, you take a $3.1 billion market and translate it into a $16 billion market. With that said, we're extremely focused on creating a device for patients with eczema, as we believe this to be the perfect entry point to our multiple markets, as these patients are desperate for an efficient solution. So how will we accomplish everything that we've set out to do today? To do this, we've formed a technically diverse team, but more importantly, a team that's emotionally driven to solving this issue. As Jeffrey mentioned, his younger sister Jessica has a severe case of eczema, and he desperately wants to provide her with relief. Vince's brother has eczema, and myself and John had eczema when we were younger. Aside from the core team, we've also formed key relationships that we believe will be invaluable to getting our device to market starting with Dr. Ethan Lerner, who's arguably the most prominent itch research specialist in the country. You have Dr. Mark Vieira, who's a practicing dermatologist in San Diego, and Julie Block, the CEO of the National Eczema Association. Besides human capital, we also believe we will need $300,000 to get our device to market. 
This will be spent on engineering, marketing, our first thousand units, and intellectual property. We would like to thank you all for coming today, and we hope you see how our device is not only reducing itch for patients with eczema, but is really restoring the quality of life for them. We are Dermachill, and we are making the world comfortable in its skin. Thanks. Vanessa, would you like to start? I was curious what everyone else's questions were because I have a long line. So. <laughs> I was curious what everyone else's questions were because I have a long list. Okay. But start, um, with, start with your best one. My best one. Well, I, maybe maybe it's not the best one, but it's the one that made me scratch my head the most, which is. What's the technology behind this? It's how does this work? What's the reason to believe? And um, if this is a medical device, have you thought about FDA approvals and clearances and, and everything that relates to that? Okay, so I think I'll start off with uh, talking about the technology and then one of you guys can take over the FDA question. So essentially what the technology surrounding our device, uh, our current prototype is we're implementing a thermoelectric cooling device uh, that uses what is known as the Peltier cooling effect. So it essentially creates a temperature gradient between two plates. And so we've implemented that into a very sanitary, compact, handheld device that will be able to take advantage of that sort of an effect uh, for our eczema patients. And then I'll take the, the second part, the FDA. Um, it's a good question because for any medical company that can really shift how things go, um, we were lucky enough to consult with a medical specialist who has taken multiple products, including her current product, through the FDA clearance. And what we found out was that our device will be a class one medical device. Um, and the way the FDA looks at devices that produce cold is they're all the same as an ice pack, no matter the fashion you're producing this cold. Um, and for us, what that means is to get clearance, we will simply have to send a letter and let the FDA know we're going to be um, operating as a medical device company. Dave? Yeah, I have a similar question. Um, what can you tell us about the ability for this device to be reimbursed? Yeah. Um, that was also something we looked at um, maybe more so in the beginning when we looked at taking the device through um, distributors and um, that path. And that's a path we went away from um, as through customer interviews. They said, you know, the price point that you currently have it at, we don't need it reimbursed. This is a price that we're willing to pay. Um, but we've also spoken with these individuals and learned about what that means to get it reimbursed. Um, and, and that could be an option, especially as we start introducing these other products that might be a little more um, expensive and getting that reimbursed for the patients. So your financial projections are not based on reimbursement? No. Is that correct? John? Unlike Vanessa, I don't have a lot of questions for this one, but uh, the biggest uh, concern would be defensibility. So I didn't, uh, when I read through your PowerPoint, I didn't see a lot uh, discussed about intellectual property. Um, I don't know how complicated it is to make this. Uh, that's not my forte, but uh, assuming that it's, it's, it's not extremely difficult, uh, what would it take for a, a more well-funded organization to come in and... and uh, steal your market share away from you. Um, so I guess I'll take that one. Um, we have spoken to a few uh, patent lawyers who have expressed to us that various aspects of our device are patentable. Um, these aspects include 
controls and circuitry which are novel to our device. Um, the, uh, our device produces a, a temperature gradient that provides a temperature uh, that we've researched to be physiologically relevant to reducing itch. Um, also aspects of device including temperature uh, control and variability. Um, and we've also uh, worked with an industrial uh, design contractor who is working on making a more anthropometric design for us and we're working on uh, getting a design patent for that as well. Um, however, even though many aspects of our, design, our device are patentable, we know that patents are not going to make us immortal. And so that's why we spent copious amounts of time um, leveraging uh, key relationships in the field of eczema and um, we are going to use those to build a strong brand, um, an identifiable brand that uh, we know that customers will um, really like. And through that, we've uh, also explored the option of uh, trademarking our, our company. Andy? Yeah, um, <clears throat> great guys. Uh, a great presentation. Well, very clear explaining what the problem is and and I like, you know, you can only feel one pain, either chill or pain or low itch or, or chill, and there, therefore this works. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, okay, is this new innovative technology? Um, it's a mobile, you know, device. How much energy does it consume? Can I put it back in my pocket after I use it or not? Or do I need a separate carrying bag? Uh, it's a flat surface right now, so is it really ergonomic? Or I know you talk about changing form factors or not. So there's a lot, yeah, there's a lot of question about, you know, the actual innovation and the actual technology to create this product. But it's a large market. Um, I don't see any of these devices existing right now besides the cold packs. It sounds very intriguing. Um, you know, I, I, think it's a, I think it's a wonderful, um, wonderful approach. So I'm, overall, my question, I guess, would be, you know, uh, in your guys' eyes, um, maybe two. One is, what's your definition of success? You know, when you're able to do this, then you guys will feel as though, hey, we've done, we've got this right. And then also, in the future, what's your idea with partnering with larger pharmaceutical firms? Because they're going to be not, if this takes off, you do a Kickstarter and things work out, you know you're going to get all this interest from large pharmaceutical firms. And, um, you know, they're going to want to work with you. What's your position towards that? Yeah, I'll take this one. Um, I'll, I'll answer the first part. Um, and so success, I guess we, we've defined it, we've thought about it, we've defined it in a couple different ways. Um, since we're all very personally invested in um, finding a solution, um, I think individually uh, success for us is just getting something that, that is good and that protects an eczema patient. Um, but as a company, uh, success for us, um, we believe that we can reach... 10% uh, of the individuals in the United States who have eczema. And uh, we believe that we can hit this, this percentage um, because eczema patients are extremely, they're, they're a very unique uh, customer basis in that they're very desperate for things that work or for things that um, will, will alleviate their itch. So for us, um, that, that percentage is our initial milestone for, for when we, we feel like we've accomplished something. And that's not to say we're, we'll, we'll hit that point and then we'll be, we'll be satisfied, um, but that's kind of our first uh, larger m milestone in terms of evaluating success uh, for, in relation to uh, a customer basis. And then your, your second question was... How are you going to deal with the pharmaceutical companies when they show interest with you? Do you plan to partner with them? Do you plan to uh, take their acquisition offer quickly? What's your idea behind working with them? 
Um, I can start and then you let me know if it, if it kind of answers your question. Um, one of the, the product iterations that we're working with um, would incorporate um, partnering with these pharmaceutical, co pharmaceutical companies um, because as, as our device stands, it, it reduces all the, the discomfort of the itch itself, but patients would be using creams, which is one of the current solutions, um, in conjunction. And we have, without going into it too much, we have an application that would pair perfectly with those creams and allow us to, to partner with those companies. We have time for one or two more. John, go ahead. I just have a, maybe a goofy question here, but uh, is it possible to make uh, a version for pets? <laughs> Great question. Yes. Um, and I mean, it depends on, I'm not sure how seriously you want me to answer this question, but I'm going to answer it as seriously as possible. Um, yeah, we can make cold uh, kitty litters and... Um, but I'm, 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 in all seriousness, uh, I think that uh, I'm not sure how, how uh, serious chronic itch is among uh, pets, and so that definitely would be something interesting to look into. It might have to be something like a, a glove implementation, or um, they can't consciously uh, activate this device like we could. Yeah, we can, one more. Uh, we can talk offline about that one as well. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that you're, you're looking for about $300,000 as your initial funding plan. Tell us where that gets you in that four-phase development cycle and marketing cycle. Could you repeat that one more time? Sorry. Oh, the $300,000 that I think was in your funding scheme, how far does that get you into that four-phase uh, marketing plan? Yeah, um, and if someone wants to add on at the end, but... Um, we believe that would, would get us pretty deep into those, those phases you were looking at. Um, and one of the reasons this is, is because the gross margins on the device itself, the 73%, are so strong that once you can get over, you know, you have that initial design fees, um, the launch of the website, um, and the marketing to get the, the name out there. Um, the margins, once you, once you cross that hump, will start to allow you to accelerate past that. Um, so. I guess to, to better answer your question, that can it might not get you to, to the overseas markets. Um, you might need to go back for a, another round of funding, but it gets us deep into that cycle. We're out of time, unfortunately. Great job, Dermot Chill. Hi everyone, my name is David Huang and I'm one of the co-founders at Opal. At Opal, we're enabling brighter, thinner displays for smarter and more energy efficient devices. We're addressing a multi billion dollar opportunity. And the problem is the, the displays in our mobile devices just aren't good enough. Why should you care? They're the reasons your phones are always dying. Now, the problem is 75% of the battery is used by the display. And displays today are incredibly energy inefficient. The way a display works is we have a light, and then we get red, green, and blue out of it. Red, green, and blue are the primary colors, and they can form any other color. So the two, the two dominating technologies we have today are LCDs and OLEDs. Liquid crystal displays start with an efficient light source, but then they go through an inefficient filtering process to give you red, green, and blue. At the end, you only get 5% of that light back. That means we're losing 95% of the power we put in. The other kind are OLEDs. 
They don't have a filtering process, but they use inefficient organic material. They're slightly better at 10% efficiency, but we're still wasting 90% of the power. It's no wonder we're always charging our phone at every possible moment. Now, OLEDs are being pushed onto us. Marketers and companies are saying, this is the next big thing. But we talked to a large mobile uh, consumer electronics company, and they confessed to us, OLEDs are a dead end. OLEDs are a dead end. This is coming from a company that's using OLEDs in their products today. So if they're not the solution, what is? And where is the solution? We have a solution at Opal. I'd like to introduce the Opal display. We don't use a filtering process because we use red, green, and blue LEDs, which are efficient light sources. We're five times more energy efficient than existing tech. And because we're using individual red, green, and blue LEDs, we have brighter colors and vivid contrast. With all these features, we're still maintaining the thinness that the market has come to expect. So where does that put us? Well, if you think back to the 50s where we had the CRT, then to the LCD and to the OLED, they're at 10% right now. Opal is offering a significant jump in improvement. An Opal display is 50% energy efficient. So what does that mean? Well, an energy efficient and thin display opens up new design space. We're solving problems for the manufacturers. It's using a fraction of the battery. It's redirecting power to other places in the display or in the device, which means we can save physical space and they can build more attractive products. What that means for you and me is that we might get a longer lasting device with more features, more connectivity, and so on. Ultimately, it's up to the manufacturers because they're our direct customer. And it's up to them to, to consider what value they want to pass to you. And so this all sounds fine and dandy. This sounds amazing but it also sounds incredibly technical. So why trust us with the future of displays? Well, we're three PhD candidates in the materials department. Asad, Chris, and I all do cutting edge research related to displays, and we have three patents related to that technology. We're, we come from a track record of success. Our materials department is number one in the world, and we are top five in the world for research impact. We're advised by world-renowned faculty like Jim Speck, Umesh Mishra, Steve Denvars, and even Nobel laureate Shuji Nakamura. They've taken ideas from the lab, our labs, and built businesses around them. You might be familiar with local startups like Sora, Transform. What's more, they've even inspired other graduate students in our department. You might be familiar with MVC Success Appeal Sciences, Fluency Lighting Tech, SDS, and there's way more. So hopefully by now, I've convinced you that the future of how we deal with our, our technology will use an Opal display. And that's a really big market. By 2020, consumer electronic displays are projected to be $154 billion. $46 billion of that are mobile displays. And so this is a lot to wrap your head around. And so we really wanted to sink our teeth into something. We started looking at automotives. We started looking at projection. But in the end, we are becoming laser focused on the wearable sector. From now until 2020, it's growing at an annual rate of 30% and is projected to be $3.5 billion. Besides this impressive growth and size, there's even more. Wearables stand the most to gain from our efficient displays. Simply, wearables haven't lived up to the hype. Only 30 to 40% of people 
are saying they would buy a wearable. And 40% of that are just tossing it into a drawer after they buy it because they say they wish it lasted longer and this is boring. Smart wearables need to be intelligent. They need to be brighter. They need to last a week. It's no longer acceptable to go by looks only. Sadly, even the Jetsons predicted that we'd be farther than where we are today. <laughs> They're streaming an episode of Flintstones to their wrist. What we have today looks more like this. We're tied to something else. Most smartwatches can't function independently. They need to be paired to a smartphone. And what's worse is when we're doing that, we're draining the battery of the watch, but you're actually draining the battery of your phone as well. And so industry insiders have realized this, and they're excited for what's next. We talked to someone at Motorola in the wearables department, and we asked them, what would a thinner display mean to you? Well, they told us, smartwatches on the market today are too thick for small wrists. Women specifically have been complaining that they're too bulky and they're too chunky. So with an opal display, a lighter technology, we're opening up segments within this already large market. So we've talked about this, the problem. We've talked about the solution, Opal and the market. Let's talk about the business model. Opal is going to be a display innovator. With, and the three most valuable assets we have are the IP we're licensing, the materials that we're developing and selling, and the strategic development alliances that we're forming. To get this out of the lab and into your lives, we're going to have a four-phase development strategy. We're going to develop, build, design, and transfer. In phase one, we're going to develop the IP and prototypes. To offset some of the capital costs up front, we're going to partner with external fabs and foundries. And we'll need about $2 million to fund phase one, and most of that will go towards R&D and IP. In phase two, we're going to take that prototype and shop it around to build these strategic alliances. We're going to build a pilot production line in order to streamline the design process. Then in phase three, we're going to design specific display solutions with our clients. And finally, in phase four, we're going to transfer this technology and materials. We're going to take that pilot production line and integrate it into their existing manufacturing capabilities. We're also going to sell, we're going to be the exclusive supplier of the materials critical for our process for them to build displays. And revenue is going to begin around the middle of year four when we are transferring this tech and materials. And so we realize this is a long development cycle, but that's because it's a transformative technology. Before I wrap up, I'd like to consider this image. This is, this is an honest look into what our world looks like today and how we get content. Everyone's staring down into their rectangular screens. What else is possible? What if we could augment reality and layer content into our world? With an opal display and opal technology, that world would look like this. We're Opal, and we're changing the way you see the world. OK. That was really good, you guys. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, just for my clarification, so what you're providing with Opal is making the LEDs nanoscale or very small. Is that basically the innovation or the technology behind what you guys are doing? 
being able to create LEDs that are super small that become pixels, and you don't have to apply some filter over it. Yeah, that's right. So there, there, are two, there are two problems we're trying to solve. One is more of a science-related problem. One is more of an engineering-related problem. So the pixels that you're referring to are actually micron size, so between 15 and 20 microns each. And there's a huge engineering problem. How do you take something that small and move it to a display you know, component? Um, and so some of the IP that we have is, is, is related to that engineering problem. The other aspect is more of a science problem. It's more fundamental. So how do we get red, green, blue pixels emitting at that color without the use of filters? So those are the two areas that we're focused on, and we have some IP that's, um, that is related to both of those. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as we all know, um, uh, VR is very, a very hot topic, and, you know, you have the Samsung um, Gear and the, mm-hmm. and the HTC Vive and a lot of products coming out finally to the, to the consumer mass. Um, from my experience, you know, you put it on even five minutes and sometimes your neck starts to strain. So by having this, uh, your Opal technology and making it thinner and lighter um, with um, less energy consumption than the battery or the, or the wiring harness behind it can be also reduced, um, obviously it's going to be a great benefit for, for all of us. Um, so I guess my question, um, are you, do you plan to... Do you plan to um, purely just license a product, or are you going to try to create a subsidiary or like a JV with some manufacturer and actually develop a product out of this? Yeah, so the business model that we've set forth, in fact, yeah, the strategy right here before you, um, these four phases really describe how we envision the the first five years of operation. We're not planning on taking down the likes of Samsung. We don't have the capabilities to scale up our manufacturing. We're not going to do that. Uh, Instead, we'd like to exist alongside them. We'd like to do some of the heavy, lift, some of the heavy lifting in terms of what this, the initial stages of R&D would consist of. But at the end of the day, the success of Opal will be relying on them to integrate our technology into their existing supply lines. Um, so our most valuable asset is the IP we provide and the strategic alliances we're able to make in order to take that out of our labs and into their, into, in, into their facilities. Dave? So can you give us a sense for where you're at in development today? Is this a technology um, which you've been able to demonstrate on a, on a prototype uh, display, for instance, or, you know, can I get the whale to pop out of my living room tomorrow? Or How, how far down the road are you at that? Sure. So the, the, um, <clears throat> our immediate focus is really on the, the continued development of, of our um, of our IP and, and the products we're, we're, we're trying to make. At this phase, we are really only at the point where we can make pixels at different colors um, at a scale that would rival uh, a display that you can go out and buy today. So our next step is really that integration problem. So how, how do we take a pixel? We're able to simulate that pixel. We're able to move that pixel. But how can now we, we move it reliably and consistently and repeatably into a display module? That's not something we focused on right now, but that would be the next step. Um, so that's, that's where we are and hopefully where we're going as, as, as soon as this competition is over, hopefully. Thanks. And can I, can I follow that with another question? Um, who You're killing do you... me here, Dave. Go ahead. Quickly. <laughs> Sorry. Who do you see yourselves competing with? Uh, if it's not the the major OEMs, the Samsungs, you know, and the, the LCs, um, who will be your competition? We know of some companies out there that are working on micro LED displays. Um, 
we have a hunch that some of these larger fish are also working on this too, but I, I have no way to substantiate that. So there are, some, um, there are some research labs. Most of them are actually out in Europe who have really been, been pioneering some of this micro-LED work. Um, I'm not quite sure where they are in terms of, in terms of their progress, but I, I do know they, they have been at it for a while and don't really have much to show for it. So from our perspective, they're going down a path that is fundamentally flawed, just like the OLED market is. Uh, we have some strategic advantages because we're at UCSB. We're working on materials that other people don't have access to, and we have facilities and resources that, that are just kind of, you know, second to none. So that's our competitive advantage. Um, Vanessa or John? Um, with regards to some of the potential manufacturers that you might be selling this technology to, have you spoken with them during your customer discovery? What's their feedback? What are they... Ca- most excited about, and more importantly, what are they concerned about? Sorry, could you repeat that again? So for the companies in which you might sell this technology to, so perhaps manufacturers of Mm -hmm. consumer products, let's say, um, or electronic companies, have you previewed this concept with them in your customer discovery process? And if so, what's what has been their feedback? Um, what are they most excited about? And more importantly, what are they most concerned about? What are the risk factors they see? Okay, thanks. Uh, so yeah, we've, we've talked with uh, a number of companies. One was Motorola, as we said, and, and two others that um, we, we can't name here. But they're really, it, it's, it's been validated that this thinner, more efficient technology would really benefit them. And those, those uh, things that I mentioned on the manufacturing side those problems are things that they're trying to, to work around right now because they, they don't have the solution. And so there's, there's been good feedback about this technology would be something that they're, they're interested in. Did, did I answer you fully? Yeah. I was most concerned what they identified as being potential risks or concerns. But yes, you did answer my, the first part of my question. Um. So there are, there are a couple of risks. Um, there's, there's some science risk, right? So, so tomorrow the, next, the really next big thing comes up, and we don't really feel that's the case, though. I mean, I, I think um, the LED market is here to stay, and we feel like we're jumping into to, uh, to an ecosystem that is pretty well developed and is just waiting to be integrated. We, we do know of some, some large consumer electronics companies that are working on similar technology, um, and... It's encouraging to know that we're on a similar path. Um, there's any additional risk. I mean, there, the uh, probably the, the biggest risk coming from Opal would be the IP risk. So we're concerned, obviously, as we should, being a small startup um, and you know trying to coexist around some of these companies, that our IP needs to be locked tight in order for us to be successful. That's something we've been advised about. We've talked to the tech transfer um, here at UCSB and. Uh, we're prepared for that, but I think that's the biggest risk from Opal's perspective. John, did you have one? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to approach this from the, being the early stage investor. So uh, I think this is a swing for the fences, and, and I'll be your, big, your biggest cheerleader because uh, to pull this off would be ex- exciting for everyone. Uh, but it's probably going to require some decent amount of capital to, to get it to where it needs to be uh, to start really turning a profit. 
to entice those early investors. You had mentioned Sora, you had mentioned Transform. They're both doing really exciting things, but uh, if I, I think they burned through a lot of that early investor cash, and uh, there's a lot of dilution. Do you have a plan in place to uh, make earlier investors whole? Who, who would kick this uh, business off for you? Yeah, so um, about like raising funding, we, we plan to also pursue uh, federal grants in the early stages to get the, the seed money we need to get things going. And uh, in addition to that, uh, we don't expect it to be very capital-heavy because there are facilities available uh, right near us where we can uh, get started, get our start, start developing IP, and start uh, the process of uh, developing our first prototypes. So in, in terms of that, I think we, we have the strategy in place to, to get the results we need to get a, a larger evaluation when it comes to raising uh, like our second round funding. We have time for one more. Dave, did you have a follow-up? Anybody? I think Chris wanted to address well, Oh, I'm sorry. If there aren't any additional questions, I'll just, I'll just hop on to that last question. One of, the, one of the systems we put into place here is we, we're, not, we're, not, uh, we're not a manufacturing company. So some of those other, other startups, um, they did a lot of things themselves. We, we're hopeful to be able to strike these strategic partnerships where a company, you know, company X comes in and is able to, to help us along in terms of, you know, opening up maybe some of their techniques, how, how they're doing things, and we can kind of work with them as kind of a, um, a mutualistic relationship rather than, than one that's competitive. So we're not looking to scale up to the point where we can manufacture chips. We're really just looking to a point where we can say, hey, this is what you guys should be doing. So we feel like we're mitigating our capital upfront costs by doing that. Thank you. We're out of time, unfortunately. So many good questions. Uh, I wish we had 20 minutes of Q&A, but we're out of time right now. Great job, Team Opal. InGrain makes sustainable paperboard packaging and marketing materials. Paperboard is a broad industry term for materials like cardboard, which act as a receptacle for foods, drinks, cosmetics, not to mention anything we order off of Amazon. The average American will use 714 pounds of paper products each year. That's equivalent to about six 40-foot-tall trees per person. Paperboard is pervasive in our lives, and yet we rarely ever notice it. But that convenience isn't without costs. Paperboard requires huge numbers of trees as inputs. The production is extremely resource intensive in terms, of, in terms of both energy and water use. And the chemical loaded wastewater has to go somewhere, often dumping directly into our waterways. In the end, more than half of this packaging will go straight to a landfill without ever being recycled. Ingrain can reduce these environmental impacts while offering a company, company an opportunity to enhance their brand value. InGrain is an innovative new form of paperboard, which uses organic waste as inputs rather than virgin trees. In addition, we use an alternative production process, which significantly reduces our energy and water use in our manufacturing, all with no added chemicals. The InGrain process is highly adaptable and capable of using any cellulosic industry waste product as a feedstock. For example, brewers spent grain, coffee grounds, wine pomace. We've adopted a technology not used by any large paper manufacturers, which gives us competitive insulation against the status quo. 
In addition, by collecting unwanted waste products, we reduce our production costs. Organic waste outputs are a headache for most industries. Remember, this is their trash. They just want it gone. They want to get rid of it in the least cost, least effort way. But this provides us access to a sustainable and above all free input for our paperboard. We see a future where we can close the loop on any number of industries, but based on interviews with over 50 breweries, my own experience as a production consultant for the craft beer industry, we've identified craft breweries who currently purchase over $150 million worth of six-pack carriers and coasters each and every year as our ideal lead market to prove our products. So why would they see value in ingrained products? Craft beer is growing rapidly and it's getting competitive. It's increasingly hard for an individual brewery to stand out on these crowded shelves. We've heard it time and time again from our, consumer, or from our survey respondents and in market research, like this observation from the president of Dogfish Head. Basically, craft breweries are desperate for ways to differentiate. Simultaneously, 84% of breweries are pursuing sustainability, both as a core company value and in terms of actual physical investments in their operations. However, only 16% of them are taking credit for these ingrained investments on anywhere of their advertisements or packaging. Ingrained packaging bridges this gap. It offers breweries an opportunity to make these environmental commitments visible, an opportunity to differentiate and build goodwill for their brand based on sustainability. For the craft beer market, we create a specific paperboard using brewer spent grain, which is the barley left over from the beer brewing process. In our products, you can actually see the grain, and these little grains immediately connect consumers to the brewing process, lending our brewery customers an aura of authenticity and craft that all of these facilities strive for. By making a material that engages consumers on both a visual and tactile level, in-grain connects consumers to the, to the brewing process and the environment in a way no other material can. Our products are more than just paperboard. It's a marketing medium that tells a story. Ingrain tells this story by uniting the value of three brand-enhancing strategies currently used by breweries into one powerful and, most importantly, cost-effective tool. First, there's traditional paperboard products. Now, these packages and coasters provide a surface area for a company to uh, show off their brand, and companies rely heavily on these products to not only attract customers, but also to influence their purchasing decisions. However, standard paperboard products are so commonplace on market shelves, they hardly stand out, much less convey any unique story for an industry. Next, we have other marketing outlets, such as websites, social media, TV, television, ads. Uh, these marketing campaigns have their place, um, but they aren't really a product that a consumer can hold in their hand and form a tactile emotional connection to. Not to mention, if a brewery's core marketing message is, uh, hey, we, uh, we make great beer, you should uh, buy from us, it's uh, not really going to stand out with 4,200 other craft breweries all saying the exact same thing in the exact same way. And lastly, we have operational sustainability investments. Now, these work to prove a brewery's commitment to the environment and the community in which they exist, but they also stay at the brewery out of view of many customers who don't go into the tap room. The most visible sustainability initiatives require huge upfront capital costs, such as Stone's $3.2 million solar installation. That's not exactly the kind of money that a small brewery can drop when they're just trying to keep the lights on their first couple years of business. Ingrained packages. It markets and it conveys a promise of true sustainability, all at a price point that's accessible to breweries of any scale. Ingrain is a packaging company that really is the full package. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Ingrain has grown out of a year and a half of in-depth research into the craft beer and alternative materials industries. We've interviewed more than 100 industry experts and potential customers, including over 50 craft breweries. So as with the introduction of any new product, there are always questions, mostly focused around how our product will speak to the specific mission of a company. But overwhelmingly, the reception from materials experts, breweries, and general consumers has been very enthusiastic. So here's just uh, what a few people are saying about Ingrain. All right, so now you've heard the pitch. Let's talk business. What is it about Ingrain that makes it an exciting investment opportunity? Many people don't realize just how big craft beer actually is. But in fact, it is. It's 20% of all beer-related revenues in the U.S., and it's also growing fast. In fact, the number of individual breweries in the market over doubled in the last five years. So when we're going to quantify what our target market actually is, we're looking at what the demand for six-pack carriers and coasters from this industry is. And just for these two products, industry demands over $150 million each year. But of course, Ingrained is more than a craft beer company. We say, see ourselves being a greater paperboard packaging company with solutions for companies like Apple, Amazon, and Target. These companies are high-volume consumer goods companies who demand a lot of paperboard packaging, but also have a demonstrated interest in the sustainability of their operations. And sustainable packaging is a $220 billion market within the larger $500 billion packaging industry. It's also expected to grow another 20% by 2018, driven in large part by changing consumer demands and environmental regulations. And so for our initial revenue model, we will begin by making six-pack carriers and coasters and selling them directly to the craft beer industry. For breweries, these are recurring purchases. They're things they make every year. So we envision making long-term relationships with our customers and that our year-over-year -year sales will grow as we add more customers, but also as our existing customers grow their own operations. And so our cost of production, once we're running at scale, are $0.27 cents for our six-pack carriers and $0.03 cents for our coasters. And at these prices, we are cost-competitive with the current market alternative. And so our gross margins on these two products are between 50 and 60% for the two products. So our go-to-market strategy is all about testing and validation at every, every stage of the process. In the upcoming six months, we'll be working with our initial customers to refine our products to make sure that we're addressing the specific needs of the craft beer industry. Once we have our products dialed in, we're going to be working for the next two years to develop our customer base and also validation while we're working with a uh, contract manufacturer and this is because in the first few years, our revenue model is all about volume, and so we want to develop our customer base and prove the val validate the market before we invest in our own independent production facility. We anticipate that we'll be profitable after the first year and a half once we've reached market penetration of 5% for each of the two products. In year three, we'll begin produ producing our own standalone production facility, which will allow us to drive our costs down and give us a production capacity to reach into new markets, but also expand further into craft beer. And so we are seeking an initial $325,000 of investment, and that will help us fund the initial year and a half until we reach profitability. It will also allow us to invest in the R&D and product testing that we will need, and will allow us to send a marketing team out to begin our customer acquisition. We plan to raise these initial funds from angel investors and also through a crowdfunding campaign. And our team is uniquely suited to take Ingrain to the next level. We are master's students at the Brand School of Environmental Science, and we have been working on Ingrain for the last year and a half. We have the skill set to deliver on Ingrain's environmental promises. In addition, Tal is a sustainability and production consultant in the craft beer industry, and her insight has been invaluable in helping us understand the nuances of craft beer. Tara is also a Cornell grad and has almost a decade of project man management experience in facilities construction. And I'm former in-house counsel for a startup company. I've been working with startups to bring their products to market for the last few years. And so we raise our glass of TMP for this opportunity in thanks, and we'd be happy to take any questions from the judges. Thank you.
Great. Well done. Who would like to start us off? Vanessa, I can see. Well, I'll start with a comment. First, that was very fast. That was kind of rushed. So that aside, so are you proposing packaging that looks like this for craft beer companies, like for the, for the, for the packs, for the six packs, or are you, is this the product? Like, That's a coaster. Right. Um, and so our packages are actually right over here. So then how is this printable? Um, so we use different mixtures. Um, that one is using a 50% mixture of spent grain and um, recycled cardboard, but we would use um, office paper, recycled office paper, so it's a white color and it'll Got be... It completely printable. Okay. So we have mean... tested in both color and black and white. Those are laser cut, um, but they're fully printable. Got it. And how do you propose these um, craft brewers, um, I guess, talk about how they're sustainable? Is it just like a th through a claim on their packaging? It sounds like you guys are also marketing your packaging to others so they know that when they see this grain that it's sustainable. I guess I... I I guess I'm struggling to kind of understand how um, how you're, you're building the value proposition of this to uh, to craft breweries, other than just the the cost reductions. Like, how are they going to market this? I know it's not it's not a very good question. <laughs> no, very clear question. Get what we're at. It's so it's it's twofold. It's up to the brewery on whether or not they want to actually label the products as being sustainable. What we found is that particularly with breweries, they're investing in a lot of sustainability efforts without. Yeah. The ability to message that to consumers, so it's something that they're investing in just because it's a core value of ours, of theirs. But for our products, you can actually see that it's sustainable. You know, in the coaster you have in your hand, you can see the grain. You know, it's made out of recycled material, so it's a lot more self-evident. And the consumer, even if it doesn't register on an, on a uh, um, kind of very conscious like sustainability right, level, it's an intrinsic value that they can see and they can feel and they can touch it. it. So it elevates the marketing experience into other dimensions beyond just seeing a printed. Uh, label on a six-pack coaster. I was going to say, even beyond that, um, craft brewers are really invested in the process of brewing, and the, this material communicates that to their customers beyond its sustainability attributes. They really want to share that with their customers, and it's not something they've been very successful at, at least based on you know our conversations with them. Um. Yeah, thanks for the presentation, and I, I like how you hand out this stuff, and especially that Amazon box. I'm a Prime member, and I order a lot of stuff, and I'm always wondering, like, why this giant cardboard box for this small yeah. thing I ordered, right? Uh, my blue recycled garbage is always full of cardboard boxes that i got to rip up and put inside. So um, I know there's a lot of cardboard being used that could be uh, uh, better processed, and you guys provide a solution. Um, I think the difficulty, obviously, is going to be to reach all the brewers, the marketing, and the sales organization to actually create that link and sell the product. Um, but what I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, as a as a customer or as a buyer of this product, I'm usually I usually tend to look at four kind of KPIs like price, quality, um, supply or logistics, and innovation. Maybe you can touch upon each one and explain to me why I would go with Ingrain to buy uh, my coasters and my paper products. Yeah, so I think we have answers on all those. Um, so you said price, supply, innovation, and what was it, the quality? 
Yeah. Right. So our products stand up better than, uh, in our testing that we've done so far, better than the cardboard alternatives. Those things have been in use for uh, several weeks. It's just our in-house testing um, with, with beverages, and they're, they're holding up great. You know, if you think about your typical coaster, they, they shred after one use, and ours have lasted for dozens. Um, price, we are uh, price competitive with the cardboard alternative, which was a big deal for us because we think we can charge more based on our added appeal for the marketing aspect and the environmental aspect. But at the same time, we don't want to just rely on that, and so cost is a big part of it for us, and we can compete on price. You know, we are price comparative. Uh, and so supply, that's something that we're, we are uh, focusing on as well, is making sure that we can uh, grow our supply into the greater craft beer market so we don't have to just start with the small breweries. We can go to the big breweries as well, and that's why in year three we're going to be developing our own independent production facility that will give us the volume where we can address you know, both the small guys and the big guys. And I would say that um, to return to the quality question again, um, one of the reasons we selected an alternative production process um, in comparison to traditional paperboard is that our products are much more durable. Um, the production creates a much stronger material for the same amount of inputs using less electricity, less water. So, John or Dave? Yeah. How is this material recycled? Does it fit in with normal recycling streams? What part of the recycling process do you have to employ? Yeah, so um, as you can see on your coaster, uh, that claim, it's not, it's not just a marketing claim. Um, all of our materials are compostable, biodegradable, and recyclable. So they can go into you know, your just general kind of mainstream recycling system as well as breaking down in like a home compost system. John, you have a question? Yeah. Um, this makes complete sense. Who would say no to this, right? <laughs> so so uh, to me, it's all about holding off the competition, whoever they may be. So the, just the executing the, the, the business plan. So have, has any companies, have they said no to you? And if so, is it cost-based? Is it durability-based? If, if the material gets wet, does it break down more? Uh, why would there be any resistance to adoption? Um, uh, well, I guess we don't want to toot our own horns and say there is no resistance. Um, I think really the only questions that we ever get from breweries is just how exactly it would fit into their logistics based on you know price and quality. Um, but they've been very satisfied with the answers that we've had so far, um, especially for coasters, um, because that wouldn't, you know, that to them is, is just something that they purchase. They don't actually have to, you know, do any kind of changes in their packaging and they don't have to worry about anything like that. Um, the response we've gotten, especially in reference to coasters and like signage, has been just this is a no brainer. There's no reason why we wouldn't switch to it if it was possible. So it's a natural, so it seems to be a natural fit for craft beer. Uh, most of the breweries that we've talked to have just wanted to know that, you know, we have the specific attributes that they need, like wet strength um, and the suitability for the high speed production lines. Uh, we don't want our products to require that they install any new equipment. So we just need to have the testing done to show them that this will hold up to condensation and it will go through high-speed production line without warping. Right. So we're still in our first prototype process. So we still do have that testing to do. So that's the only pause that breweries have had about the six-packs. But as Talia said, the coasters and the signage we're also considering doing has been when can we order them. We've got time for one or two more. Dave? Well, it sounds like you've identified a nice niche in the craft brew market. Um, 
there's bound to be competition inevitable, you know, before too long. So what do you see as the next market that you'd like to enter? Well, we're going for high-volume uh, consumer goods companies. You know, we think that eventually we'd like to expand into the Amazons of the world because we can build this material to be very similar to cardboard, so we can make those boxes in a lot more environmentally friendly way than they're currently being made. Um, but there's also high-quality and, and high-cost consumer goods like uh, Apple products. They use a lot of packaging, and they have a, a demonstrated interest in wanting to improve in their environmental footprint. And we offer them a very visible, a very tangible, and a very marketable way of doing that. Um, so it's not just craft beer. Craft beer is the, the first place for us to start because it's easy. You take the grain from the breweries and you send it right back to them in their own packaging. But it's not the, the only place that we're going to end up. We have a lot more markets we're going to break into. On a personal note, I think for like consumer-facing products, I would be most interested in expanding into coffee just because I would like to have packaging that's like a scratch-and-sniff packaging also. <laughs> Any gentlemen? Uh, uh, yeah. There'll be time. How, how important is it? For you, for you to have your investors be sustainably minded? Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of a question that I would say we deal with at Bren a lot. Um, someone's personal preferences for sustainability aren't as important as their ability to acknowledge its market value. Um, so if we have an investor that, you know, maybe they think that windmills are, or, you know, wind turbines are stupid um, and they don't want one near their house but they understand that it's you know a good investment opportunity and that other people like it and they're willing to accept that then we'll take their money <laughs> if they just think it looks good we'll sell it to them John did you have a quick one uh, that's okay oh no I, I remember now uh, coasters what percentage of your revenue projections are represented by this product versus the craft beer packaging. Yeah, so it, it evolves. Uh, coasters are more profitable for us, and so and they're also the easiest one, ones for us to implement, so we're going to have a higher percentage in the beginning. Towards the end, we, we phase those out just because the size of the coaster market is smaller than six-pack carrier market. Uh, so it, as we move forward and as we progress, six-pack carriers take over a larger percentage, uh, but in the beginning, we're going to be selling a lot more coasters than six-pack carriers. Vanessa, did you have one? Are you good? Okay, I guess we're time's up anyway. All right, great job and great. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Rahul, and we're Team Osmo. We're revolutionizing water sampling. Now, at the outset, I know that might seem like a dry subject, but it's not, because water quality matters. You're all probably aware of the disastrous events that have occurred over the last several years, for example, in Flint, Michigan, or in the Deepwater Horizon incident in the Gulf of Mexico. In all of these cases, one of the biggest drawbacks subsequent to the events was that we didn't really know the impact of these events on the ecosystem, but most particularly on the quality of water in these regions. And this is especially important when you're talking about water quality, which is important for drinking and portable purposes, especially for human applications. And the biggest limitation of existing water sampling and collection techniques is that they're challenging to execute. And it's further exacerbated by the fact that they're very expensive. That's one of the biggest reasons why, even to date, we have no idea of the impacts of events like these on the environment or on water quality. This is what existing state-of-the-art water sampling looks like. The image on the left-hand side is an in-situ analyzer. That's what it's colloquially called in 
the academic communities. This is the device that's used for, used for collecting the water sample. That's the person using it. Compare the sizes. The device is bigger than the person using it. It weighs a lot. It's cumbersome to move around, and it's not really portable. It has massive upfront capital costs. And even after all of this, it doesn't really give you good data. The other option is spot sampling. That's just the fancy term used for that. You have two researchers standing knee-deep in water, collecting samples of water manually. Now, how long do you think one of you would stand knee-deep in water in Flint, Michigan in the middle of winter? Probably not many of you, if any of you for that matter. The biggest limitation of this is that the number of samples you can collect and the frequency with which you can collect water samples is really limited by how often your researchers or your um, individuals are able to be out in the field. As a result, these are very labor-intensive. That's where our solution comes in. We're Osmo, a superior water sampling device. We're cost-effective. Compared to the existing technologies, our upfront as well as operating costs are significantly lower. The devices that we develop are reliable. They have low labor requirements. Let me elaborate a little more on that. Osmo is designed in such a way that you can deploy the device in the field on day one, and subsequently you collect the device only at the end of your sampling period. Now, this period of time could be anything from two weeks, three weeks, two months, six months, even an entire year. Let me reiterate that a little more. This means if you want to sample water from a region for a year, you only need to deploy the device on day one, pick it up on day 365. It gives you a complete data set. What I mean by that is over the extended period of time that you're using this to collect water samples, it's continuously collecting water for the time for which it's deployed. As a result, at the end of the sampling period, you can precisely correlate what part of that sample was collected at what point in time or on what date. As a result, you get unprecedented resolution for whatever subsequent chemical analyses you want to do in terms of measuring does my water contain nitrate, phosphate, or for that matter, even lead. And lastly, it's versatile because it's the exact same device can be used in a variety of environments. You can use it in marine ecosystems. You can use it for freshwater reservoirs. You can even use it in industrial effluent streams. It's also versatile because of the fact that once you collect a sample of water using Osmo, you can now take the sample to the laboratory and you can analyze it for whatever component you're interested in. Existing technologies like the in-situ analyzers essentially focus on only one component. That's where Osmo gives you the versatility not only to decide where you want to collect your water samples from, but also what you want to measure once you've collected these samples. Osmo is essentially the brainchild of Kyle Newman, seated right there. He is a graduate student in marine sciences, and he's holding the device right here. That's the entire device. You can see, compared to what I showed you earlier, these are very portable, they're lightweight, and they're robust even if you deploy them out in an ocean. Technologically, it's based on a patent-pending uh, method where we have a pump, which is osmotically powered, which essentially means there are no moving parts. 
no electrical components. And then there is a sample collection section of the device where we store the sample as it's being collected over the extended period of time in very thin capillaries. Now I talked to you about the technology and how the device is robust functionally compared to existing alternatives. It's equally important to realize that it presents tremendous market, market opportunities as a business. As of today, we've decided to focus on academic water research laboratories, primarily because we have domain expertise in the area from Kyle and from Anjuna, who unfortunately could not, hear be, could not be here today. And this is the segment of the market that's most accessible to us. Based on our estimates of adoption of our devices globally in water research laboratories, we've quantified that the market is valued at about $1.8 billion on a global scale. Our immediate target market is within the United States, where a similar analysis yields an estimate of about $100 million. Now, in the previous slides, I was talking about a number on an annual basis. Let me talk a little more about that. We have a very robust revenue model because it has a two-pronged approach. The first one is the more obvious one, where you have revenue coming in from a one-time sale of our device, which is the core device. This is sort of the schematic of what it would look like. We sell it for $5,000. Our cost of materials and manufacturing are $1,300. That demonstrates that we have very healthy gross margins right up front. But that's not just it. In addition to that, we have a recurring stream of revenue that comes from sales of quality-controlled consumables, which are necessary to use the device on a continuous basis for extended periods of time. This could include sample tubing, filters. But what's remarkable is the revenue stream is quantified to be approximately $7,800 per unit per year. In combination, you can clearly see that a significant amount of revenue that we gain from one single device, but more crucially, it allows us to retain existing customers over extended periods of time. So that sort of demonstrates the robustness of the revenue model. I talked to you about the, the finances and the technology behind our business model. What further demonstrates that they are really cohesive and functionally and operationally feasible is that we already have commit commitments for initial orders from the Oregon State University and the University of California, Santa Barbara, which are these orders that we've received, or commitments that we've received are valued at $150,000. We finished device developments for Osmo. We finished lab tests and quality control on all of these devices. So what, what I showed you in a preceding image with Kyle holding the device was not just a minimum value prototype, it was the actual device that we intend to sell. A key component of our business model is our manufacturing partners with whom we've established long-standing and sustained relationships over the last three to four years. These manufacturing partners are essentially experts in marine engineering of different components on marine-going vessels. So, and we're confident that these relationships will be sustained over the um, lifetime of Osmo. Lastly, we're cognizant of the fact that the device relies on technology, which is important to protect, and we're in the final stages of filing a patent for the same. Since I said we're almost close to being launched, we have very minimal capital requirements. Prior to launch, 
just to ensure additionally the longevity and rigor of our devices and for initial marketing and promotion efforts we need about fifty thousand dollars in prior to launch revenue and subsequently we need about hundred and twenty thousand dollars in operating capital for the first year because at the end of the first year we break out for a profit so the time for return is relatively very short and that demonstrates that our devices as well as finances are very robust lastly we have a fast-paced team with a diverse skill set from a variety of avenues and this is we're confident that this will enable us to take Osmo forward thank you we're Osmo we're revolutionizing water sampling because water quality does matter Nice job, Osmo. Judges, who would like to lead us off? So, um, yeah, thanks for the presentation. I, um, <clears throat> I also appreciated your explanation of your reoccurring revenue model, the razor blade model. Um, it makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and it's not just selling the product initially. But uh, so in your presentation, you had initial contracts for 150000 I believe, does that represent 30 devices at 5,000 apiece, or are you including the recurring revenue with that? That's only upfront um, device sales, so that's 30 units. That does not include the recurring revenue from those units. So from two entities, UCSB and, and Oregon State University, they would order 30 of these units? I'm, I'm just trying to get a feel for, does one water lab order one unit, or do they need multiple? Or uh, Yeah, so... Um, the labs that I've spoken with and the, the labs that are interested in purchasing our, our device um, are interested in buying multiple of them because through deploying an array of them in an environment, they can get spatial resolution as well as temporal resolution. So if you deploy one, it, tells you, it gives you high-resolution data about what's going on at that single point. But if you deploy 10 of them or 30 of them or 50 of them, it gives you spatial resolution about the the entire area and you can imagine in a marine environment where things are changing really quickly you have to worry about large depth gradients and things like that that they would be interested in buying a, a cool very interesting yeah no, and then you mentioned you had a total addressable market of around 100 million for the u.s and one point something for global but for u.s 100 million does that represent right now at five thousand dollars per unit is that like two thousand units being sold every year or is that a, how many units are being sold at how much so that accounts for the fact that each device, once sold, will account for some amount of recurring revenue. And the device has a lifetime of about three years. So we've essentially assumed that it's 5,000 over three for one year as the upfront cost and some additional recurring revenue that comes from that device. That's how those numbers were estimated. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Dave, go ahead. Yeah, congratulations. Um, Sounds like a really nice solution to a very complex problem in water sampling. And you've obviously got a nice little niche in um, the oceanography and marine biology area. But I'm very interested in, in that larger market and understanding um, what segments are in that market. What's represented in that $100 million? Is that uh, industrial waste? Is it pharmaceutical processing is it beverage fluid streams what are you what are you looking at in that part of the market 
Uh, yeah, so the, that market, that $100 million market in, in the United States is based solely off of research labs at academic institutions. And the, there is a much, we recognize a much larger market beyond that um, with water quality mag- management agencies, federal, state, and local agencies, um, and nonprofits that also do water quality management. Uh, I have spoken to members of uh, state agencies and uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that would be interested in using this. We just um, are really comfortable with the academic market at the moment, and so we decided to pursue that at the outset, and then we know that there's a larger market market to expand into. Vanessa? Dave, did you have a quick follow-up? No, that's, that's, that, thank you for clarifying. So it sounds like I missed the mark. <laughs> You're not addressing anything outside of oceanography, limnology, that type of stuff. Uh, I mean, not, not initially. Um, I mean, we, we, our device absolutely could address those things. We just, um, uh, we're, we're comfortable in, in that that is the market we can enter into, that we already have inroads into. Um, but we, there is definitely a larger market outside of that that we plan on tapping into in the future we, we, that would address, you know, wastewater effluent and things like that. Vanessa? So with your target market being academic labs, what, what's the most efficient way of, of capturing that market as quickly as possible? How do you scale your, your users or your um, customers quickly? So that's a great question. Um, and I didn't talk about that a lot, but the reason why our initial market capture, promotion, and marketing efforts don't require a lot of funds is because the primary routes to establishing customers in these markets is by honing in on key opinion leaders, so academics within the field, which Kyle is aware of, and who realize the importance of the technology and the device. Secondly, one of the easiest and most feasible avenues to approaching academics in these water research laboratories is through conferences. And so we factored in those, those monetary requirements in the numbers that we just presented. And based on the fact that we initially garner key opinion leaders and academics that we know of within, the, within either the University of California, Santa Barbara, or the Oregon State University, we expect that just the word of mouth within the academic community should initially help us extend out further. Additionally, um, the, the academic community, uh, there are a lot of conferences every year um, for water, resor- water research, uh, oceanographic research, um, and we plan to attend those conferences, have a really large presence at those conferences, and present data that we have collected in the field that shows that this device is, is superior to other methods. Okay. And are budgets um, set once a year, meaning there's only one period in which your customers, the, the labs, the academic labs, can actually buy your product? Like, are you looking at a um, basically... Um, you know, a, a sales pattern where, like, it's just one time a year where you have a window to actually capture sales? What's the buying cycle, I guess, is in, in short, the question. I'm sorry, but I couldn't hear what you said. Could you just speak a little louder? Oh, sure, sorry. My question was with regards to the buying cycle, so the procurement cycle for, of, of these um, academic labs, these universities. 
What do we know about the patterns in which they buy? Is it one time a year, you know, based around when budgets are set? Um, you know, what, what's that window to actually capture as many of these labs as possible? Uh, I, I mean, in my experience in writing grants and, and, and receiving grant funds is there is a, there is a bit of a cycle. However, um, I mean, like in, in right now we're sort of in a grant dead time, I would say, but it's only a couple months, and there's, there's reoccurring grant opportunities that pop up uh, year-round, so um, different labs have different uh, sources of their funding. They're not all coming from the same place, um, and so far, I, I haven't seen that people are really limited by, oh, I can only buy this time of year, because that's when I have grant funding. John, do you have a question? Uh, yeah, um, I'm curious. Well, first of all, I will say congratulations also. You have product. It's selling. 150K, I think that's pretty impressive. And uh, But uh, beyond academic research, what are the other markets you're going to pursue, and how are you going to build your sales model and marketing model, because that's probably going to be a different requirement than academic sales? And, well, that's a great question. Um, Kyle alluded, this, alluded to this a little bit earlier, but currently we've only focused on the academic research market, but the same technology and the devices are extendable to primarily regulatory organizations who would be interested and be required to, more importantly, to monitor and collect water samples from a variety of areas. The reason why we did not immediately tap into that particular segment is we aren't very well versed with the buying criteria, which may change because we're working with academics as of now. It might change as we move to federal and regulatory organizations who are perhaps a little more budget constrained, depending on whether we're looking at federal organizations, state, or local organizations. Another aspect is that the technology and the device particularly relies on continuous sampling. As far as federal organizations are concerned, we're currently reaching a point where we may be overshooting their requirements, which might be a few times a month as opposed to continuously. So that's one sort of dissonance that we're going to try, and uh, we realize that it exists, but we're going to try and find a solution to that in the upcoming future. We are unfortunately out of time. So thank you, Team Osmo. Nice job. Hi, everyone. I'm Kelsey. I'm with Team Vibe, and I have a friend named Joe. And this is Joe's world. My friend Joe was born blind. He has no light perception whatsoever. He navigates using a cane, and he relies heavily on his sense of hearing and touch so that he can get information about his environment. And as you can imagine, Joe faces challenges every day because of his blindness. Uh, the cane only tells him information about the ground, and it's not always appropriate, particularly in tight indoor places or in large crowds of people. Uh, Joe's uncomfortable in these kinds of places because he doesn't want to be tapping into people with his cane because he's worried people will think he's a nuisance. And his only other option is to literally feel out in front of him with his hands to make sure that he doesn't run into anything. And Joe doesn't want to do that. It's embarrassing, and he stands out in a way he doesn't want to. 
So typically, instead of going to places that Joe wants to be, he just stays home. Our mission is to help Joe. We're Team Vibe, and we're empowering the visually impaired. Our product integrates ultrasonic technology with haptic feedback. It gives Joe a way to discreetly scan his surroundings, and then that information is communicated through unique vibration patterns that he can interpret so that he can know his surroundings and navigate freely with independence and confidence. Our solution is the Navi Glove. We've integrated all that technology into a single glove that Joe wears on his hand, and he can use this to scan outdoors in conjunction with his cane, and indoors in those places he doesn't use his cane, he just folds it up, clips it onto his belt, and continues to scan around and get the information he needs. We know that our product works because for the past five months, we've been testing it. We've worked with industry experts and allies of the visually impaired community to get our prototypes into the hands of as many users as possible, and they really liked this solution. This is a picture of Greg. He's one of our long-term beta testers, and uh, shown here, Greg is using his cane, and he's got our prototype Navi Glove on his other hand. And actually, at this point, we were walking around showing him how the device works, and Greg stopped, and he kind of laughed to himself, and we asked him why he was laughing, and he said that for the last 10 years, he's made this walk to and from work, and tapping this fence with his cane, he's always assumed it was a six-foot-high fence along this property line. He was scanning with our prototype and realized there was no object here, and so within minutes of using this device, Greg's already getting a clearer picture of his surroundings, so we're really excited about the potential for this device to improve people's lives. The NaviGlove's the only device available that meets all of our customers' critical needs to be useful in these types of situations. I've already talked about most of the features on this chart, but I want to specifically point out that our method of encoding information through vibration is unlike any other technology available, and it allows us to communicate more information in finer detail than any other options. We're in the process of patenting this technology so that we can protect that competitive advantage and continue to grow our business. We plan to charge $350 for a single Navi Glove. Um, this allows us to maintain a healthy margin to invest in our company and continue to grow and develop further solutions. And we've been validating that price point with our users. So we're really confident that this is a doable price to build our business. We'll be starting by focusing on the 1.3 million legally blind Americans, which gives us an initial target market of $455 million. And there's a lot of room for us to grow as we seek to expand our product into the global market. So people like Greg and Joe have three major means of helping them live their lives. The first are mobility trainers. These are people who work one-on-one -on -one with visually impaired clients to help them learn to live independently. So for example, when Joe's class schedule changes, he sets up an appointment with his mobility trainer, and that person works with Joe to teach him the new route to get to the classes he needs to be on. So we plan to work with the certification programs for mobility trainers, get them familiar with our product, and make sure that trainers are able to recommend it to their clients. There are also community resource centers. We've been working with the Braille Institute in downtown Santa Barbara. And these are places that visually impaired people can go to take classes on different technologies. 
Uh, it's a place where Joe might go to learn about job opportunities in the area. And so we plan to provide demo product at these types of places so that people can try our product out, use it in a familiar environment, and become comfortable enough and see the value of it and come to our website and buy it. And then finally, um, departments of rehabilitation maintain lists of assistive technologies for visually impaired people. So we intend to get endorsement from these and make sure that our product is on these lists. We are confident that we can raise some money with crowdfunding, and we're also seeking $400,000 in investment. Uh, that money will go first and foremost to securing that intellectual property protection, and then uh, the bulk of it will go towards finalizing our engineering and getting our manufacturing spun up. We've got a fantastic team that's ready to make this happen. Uh, Harold Schaefer is our engineering main man. He's getting his master's in electrical engineering and is specifically focusing on haptics. And Yannick Metzner is getting a master's in technology management. And uh, his background is industrial engineering. Yannick worked with a visually impaired student in high school when he was in Germany. And so those two kind of put their heads together. And that's where we came up with this idea to solve this problem. I'm Kelsey Judd. I'll be running operations. I'm also in the MTM program. And my background is in systems engineering. So I'm used to figuring out what customers need a product to do and then testing it to make sure that it fills those needs. I'd like to just recap that to visually impaired people, this is a challenge they face every day. And we've built a solution that we think really has the power to make their lives better. Thanks. Nice work, team vibe. Who'd like to lead us off? Can you they, elaborate a little bit on um, how you'll take this to the market? I know that uh, marketing to, to blind individuals probably has some unique challenges. What sort of uh, avenues will you use to get this to the market? Sure. Um, so. As we've said, one of the advantages of kind of this, these networks of resources are that they're built-in influencers and kind of multipliers. So the mobility trainers we've talked to have worked with like 50 to 100 clients. Um, our plan is to you know, get those people allied with us, show them the value of the product, and uh, get them to make recommendations for it. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I can see that those are the people that you might market to. How do you how do you get to them? There's probably how many individuals like this do you need to reach out to in the U.S., for instance? Sure. Um, so these trainers receive their degrees in, in special education um, from certain schools. One is Cal State Northridge, which is very big. So we can go to those schools and and host workshops and thereby reach the mobility trainers. All the mobility trainers are also usually working with local departments of rehabs and um, community outreach centers like the Bell Institute, so we can reach them through those centers. And there are um, conferences for the visually impaired and assistive technology for the visually impaired where we can reach those trainers as well. Vanessa? 
Hi, I'm curious how you arrived at your pricing. Um, I know you have an 85% margin, but did you approach your pricing from the standpoint of like cost-based or market-based? I see that you have a lot of competitors, so how does your pricing compare to theirs? Um, so we first looked at the competitive space, and um, our competitors range from about 200 to about $1,300. And we are at the lower end of that because we were trying to find a price point where people are able to afford the device by themselves without seeking additional reimbursement. Um, and also through the customer interviews that we did with visually impaired people um, here in Santa Barbara, we validated that this is a price point that they feel fits the value that the product provides to them. Since your product has so many more bells and whistles than these competitors, and the price, you said the pricing ranges in the, almost as, as high as 1000 why not raise your pricing just a little bit more to capture a little bit more margin if there's such a huge price gap between you and the next competitor? Mm -hmm. It seems like the, the products that are priced higher are, are having difficulties to um, penetrate the market just because they're not affordable. Um, a lot of people um, in the visually impaired community don't have very much disposable income, so they can't afford $1,000 for a device. Yeah, and we don't want to gouge them anyways. Right. Andy? Uh, yeah, um, thank you for your presentation, and um, it must be wonderful to be able to work on a project that impacts so many people's lives once you have it out there in the market for the good. Uh, so I commend you guys on that. That being said, um, in order to be sustainable, you have to have a business plan and you have to be able to sell the product. And um, uh, is this considered a medical device? Um, do you have to get some sort of approval? Um, and then another idea I had, which was how do you, like, once this becomes prolific, how do you connect all the people wearing it to be able to, like, map out certain areas and provide them even more information? Do you have any thoughts regarding that? Um, I can speak to the medical device stuff. Um, so it's a class one um, device according to FDA regulations. So that would mean we wouldn't need approval. It would be, need to be FDA listed, but it would be 510K exempt. Um, and in terms of connecting the community, uh, we plan to um, integrate Bluetooth into the device and um, have an app. Um, and so we could kind of build a user base um, through the app. John? Yeah. I noticed in your slide deck that you guys have net profitability in there for year two. That seems uh, aggressive to me, but if you can do that, you're raising $500,000. Is that your last raise? And if not, how much more do you think you need to raise considering net profitability in two years? Mm -hmm. um, so. This is the initial um, round that we're going to do just to get the product out to the market, and then we'll see how much traction we can get within the first two years. I know it seems aggressive to reach profitability um, within two years, but given the high um, margins that we have on this product, uh, it seems like that would be possible if we can reach the numbers that we projected. What are your biggest barriers um, for success? Sure. Um, so one thing that we've kind of learned in talking to a lot of our advisors is that there are a lot of challenges associated with hardware products um, versus a lot of the kind of software startups that are going on. So while we've worked with hardware, we've never worked on spinning up production of a product like this. So we expect to learn a lot in that process. But with that, we do feel that 
you know, we're ready for challenges there. Go ahead, John. How long do you think these gloves will last? Did you do any kind of durability testing? Uh, the durability is probably limited by the durability of the battery, so that would be around two years. Vanessa, did I see that you have a follow-up? Dave? I think you mentioned something about IP. Have you got patents around this technology or this device? Uh, we've consulted patent lawyers who are convinced that we can patent the unique way we use to map the information to vibration patterns. So we're currently working on filing a patent for that. We have time for a couple more if there are questions. Go ahead, John. Uh, it seems like you're heavily dependent on trainers for uh, helping to sell the device. Have you worked out an incentive plan for them to uh, keep them highly motivated to do so? Um, we talked to mobility trainers, and the feedback we got is that they would um, feel that it is unethical for them to receive any kind of kickbacks or incentives for promoting the device. Um, they are very committed to helping their clients in the best and most objective way they can. So our plan is to um, approach the trainers and offer them the possibility to offer a discount for their clients. So, for example, if the client's by, by recommendation of their trainer, they save 10% on the device, but the trainer will not get any incentives or any kickbacks. What are you looking for in your investors? Uh, definitely the manufacturing experience. And, um, you know, we, we'd be looking for investors who can kind of bring general experience that we don't have, being manufacturing and some financial expertise. And then really commitment to the cause would be, I think, priority number one. Um, we think that it's a really great business opportunity, and we're confident that we can maintain the high margins, but uh, kind of going along with Yannick's mentioning that there's some ethical issues with, we don't want people selling our product to make money. We want people selling it because it helps. So that would be a pretty important thing for us in talking with, you know, taking on any funding. Vanessa, did you have one more? Just one more. After you've penetrated the market with this glove, what's, what's next? Is it a new product? Is it, you know, what's, what's after this? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, so I think the, we would probably be working in parallel a little bit at this point. So getting the product, since our distribution model does rely on community centers and mobility trainers, we will be putting work into expanding that network and getting the Navi Glove distributed as widely as possible, um, including global distribution, which will have some logistical challenges. Uh, and then in parallel, we think there's a lot of room to expand the capabilities of this device. We've talked with some folks that we've interviewed about uh, potentially integrating like, infrared sensors to measure temperature or there are color detectors to you know, expand the amount of information we can communicate. So there's opportunity there to develop, you know, additional upgrades to the product. So that, will this ever be a replacement for the cane? Uh, I think we envision it outside more for being used in conjunction with the cane because the cane does provide a different type of information, more about the ground and about stairs. So then why can't you integrate it into the cane? 
Uh, the cane can't be used indoors. It's usually inappropriate and it takes up a lot of space. The visually impaired people don't want to hit other people with their cane, so that's where it's really valuable to be able to use this without the cane. Thank you, Team Vibe. Great job. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.